0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. When we think of tellers and recorders of fairy tales, our mind naturally turns to Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, or, of course, the Grimm brothers. And yet, the 17th century French writer who actually coined the term "conte de fée" or «fairy tale » when she published her major collection of them in 1697, goes largely unremembered, sidelined perhaps because of her gender at a time when such prominence amongst women was sadly much more rare. That writer, who compiled the original collection in the French language, was Marie-Catherine Le Jumel de Bonville, known more colloquially as Madame Dolnois, Her work is not often found in English-language volumes, but is rather sidelined to one or two translated stories being put into anthologies alongside other writers. But in April of this year, Princeton University Press released a new English collection of Madame Dolnoir's tales, beautifully visualised by fine artist Natalie Frank and translated by the eminent Professor Jack Zipes. The Book called The Island of Happiness, features a new translation of The Tale of Mira, one of Del Noir's earlier stories, in which the beautiful protagonist kills any man who falls in love with her, before herself falling for a man who is indifferent to her. The Island of Happiness is a very important new book in the field of fairy tales, and we are fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with both the artist and the translator. In the next episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, we'll devote the entire episode to an interview with artist Natalie Frank, because artists working on books too often suffer from not receiving the same attention as authors, and we want to redress the imbalance by giving her her own show. But in this episode of the podcast, we're delighted to be able to bring you an interview with Professor Jack Zipes, who is himself a very important figure in the field. Retired from the University of Minnesota, Professor Zipes' work has significantly altered the whole way in which fairy tales are examined and analysed. He was responsible for translating the complete 1857 edition of the Grimm Brothers' fairy tales in 1987, and in 2014 he published a new study of the tales, alongside 1812 and 1815 first editions of their original Folk and Fairy Tales. His long list of awards culminated in 2019 with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the World Fantasy Awards. One of our Folklore Podcast book reviewers, Hilary Wilson, has reviewed The Island of Happiness, which you can find on the Folklore Podcast website. And so, I asked her to speak with both Natalie and Professor Zipes about the title. You can find more about Hilary, as well as links to Professor Zipes' website and work on the page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website. Here is Hilary's interview with Professor Zipes on the Island of Happiness.
1: Hello everyone, Uh, this is Hilary Wilson with the Folklore Podcast. Today we will be talking to Professor Jack Zipes about the Island of Happiness, the Tales of Madame... Dolnois, recently released by Princeton University Press. So welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you very professor. much for inviting me. I look forward to talking to you about Madame Dolnois.
1: Yeah, um, so to begin with, um, I would just like for you to tell us a little bit about uh, Madame Dolnois and you know why it's so exciting that we're getting this new collection of her tales.
2: Yes, yeah. well, uh, Madame Del is extremely important in the history of the literary, literary fairy tale, not the, although she depended on oral tales, uh, uh, but she is really uh, the inventor of the term or creator of the term, uh, conte de Faye. Comte de Faye, uh did not exist until she labeled her tales Fairy tales, or and some, and you can translate uh, conte de fée as uh, tale about a fairy or tale about fairies, and so on. Uh, and uh, in, of course, when uh, the British began translating her works or works by other women who were writing conte de fée, they shortened it to fairy tale, and that's uh, that's how we we have that term. But it's not just that uh, for which she, I think is famous. Uh, she had a very unusual um, a career as a, a writer insofar as uh, she um, was born into a, an aristocratic family and uh, a typical of families in the uh, 17th century. Uh, the uh, children, the female children, generally were married off at 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, and, and this was her case. She was married to a, a baron de Noir in and, uh, and that was uh, uh, in the uh, 1650s, I believe. Or I, I don't have her exact dates with me right now, but uh, she... Uh, uh when she married uh, she uh, she didn't know that the this man was somewhat uh uh one would say uh, uh a libertine and uh, a a man who really maltreated her and um uh so that uh, by the time uh madame de turned uh 15 16 or 17 uh, she and her mother uh, tried to have the father uh, executed uh, in a plot that uh, did not work out well because Baron Donois managed to prove that he was innocent. And from that point on, uh, Madame Donois had to leave Paris. Uh, and then uh, uh, th- I think that was in the 1660s. And um, uh, we don't know, this is the, the uh, there There's so many things we don't know about her, but she, uh, she may have been a spy for the French government or, or French uh, royalty at that time, or she, uh, but she may have traveled to Spain, to the Netherlands, uh, to England. Uh, her mother, we don't know exactly, her mother uh, supported her, we think. Uh, so she's very mysterious, but we do know uh, that she returned full-time uh, to Paris in the 1690s and began writing. Uh, she had already written uh, a novels and uh, a memoir of her travels, so fictitious travels, because again, we don't know exactly where, where she went. But we again, we do know that she was there in Paris writing and uh, becoming fairly well known and set up a salon herself, where she invited uh, other uh, aristocrats, men men and women to attend her salons where they would tell stories, play games, and so on and so forth. And in the 1690s, approximately 1695, uh, she began, uh publishing uh she published two really major volumes of fairy tales that are highly interesting and um really set a i would say the standard for other women uh to write begin writing fairy tales uh and they uh, knew each other uh although several of the her <laughs> of her compatriots, women compatriots, uh, because they were outspoken, Were uh, the king uh, quite often had them sent off either to a prison or to another part of France and so on because their writings seemed to be scandalous or dangerous. Um, uh, uh, Madame Donois survived another uh, she, uh, plot to have uh, the uh, friend of, uh, to, to have one of her friends wanted her husband, because he was abusive, uh, killed. And so she helped that woman, supposedly, <laughs> to have him killed, but he survived. And the woman, uh, I think it was Madame Piquet, uh, was uh, beheaded. Uh, and the latter part of her life uh, we uh, is somewhat, uh, in the late 1690s, she stopped writing fairy tales become Seems that she became somewhat religious, but again, yeah. like I said, the information is uh, still up in the air, and um, she then died at about approximately, if I recall, around 1705. Uh, again, the, the, you have to correct me on these dates. I don't have her. I don't have my book. I, I've been moving uh, <laughs> to another house. And so a lot of my records and so so on are are missing. At any rate, that's the story. And and, uh, the reason for is why she is so significant is not only because of her writing, but because of the fact that she and other women at that time began uh, writing similar tales uh, that uh really have a feminist uh, aspect to them uh both in their uh, their lives the way they live their lives these women writers and also because of the fact that her tales really celebrated the power of fairies mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, the, pair, the fairies in her fairy tales uh replace god they replace uh kings uh it's, it's uh, all the power is uh, uh, located in these unusual fairies who can so- sometimes be very, uh, let us say, dangerous because uh, they will transform you into cats, mice, uh, ghosts, uh, dragons, you name it, if they feel that you have done them some wrong and uh and you have to lead a type of ethical life and, and uh, uh prove it to the fairies that, that you are really honest and decent and you are like the these women writers call themselves précieuses uh precious people precious women and uh and they really were very outspoken, unusual women, uh, and part of what we would call a feminist movement at that time. So that's my interest was my, uh, uh, once I discovered her uh, many years ago, uh, I translated uh, a lot of her tales, and um, and more recently, Natalie Frank, who's a really great artist, very controversial, very feminist, very outspoken. Uh, she asked me to uh, publish a select group of these tales. Uh, two of them were not, were written before she began writing Uh, uh They were in, in novels, in her novels. One, one is The Island of Happiness, and uh, the other is Mira, which uh, both of them are really unusual tales uh that are not really well known uh, or in 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 other words many people do not know that that she had written these tales and that that was one of the reasons why i uh asked uh, uh natalie to uh, include those two tales in this collection
1: yeah i was really taken by uh the story of mira in particular i'd never read any other story quite like that one <laughs> um, right yeah. It was hilarious. Yes. and It it also just yeah it made me do a double take when I finished it. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, wait, did I actually finish reading this? Did I read it wrong? <laughs> it, it really caught me off guard. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I have to say that Natalie Frank's illustrations with it are absolutely breathtaking. Yes. I really loved the artwork, and I'm actually going to be talking to her, um, doing great. an interview with her in a week or two. So
2: oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm very we're, we're working on a new uh collaboration uh of, of Eta Hoffmann's tales for Yale. Oh, University fantastic. Press. And uh the I'm I'm in, in the middle of translating uh well I've translated some of Hoffmann's tales before, but uh I didn't realize that there that most of his fairy tales are novellas, very long and complicated, oh. very, very uh, difficult to translate. At any rate, uh, I haven't seen what she's produced for those tales, uh, and but I'm sure they'll be provocative
1: yeah i I was really mesmerized by by it all, and I thought that it really fit the tone of uh, Donois' fairy tales quite well
2: yes, yes,
1: but um on the topic of the first two stories in the collection, um, the Island of Happiness and the Tales of Mira, mm-hmm. um, looking at donnois's actual life um as you laid out uh it really seems as if her experiences with men and the experiences that um you know the other people you know in her salons later had with them uh mm-hmm. were a bit on the negative side uh sure. to put it mildly um do you feel that it's those you know kinds of influences being so prevalent in life that led to the focus on fidelity um yeah. you know, being such an importance in her tales
2: Right. Yeah, no, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, she and the other writers uh, uh, we can talk about later, uh, uh, who were very gifted, uh, suffered a great deal uh, in their, despite the fact they were all aristocratic, they all came from uh, very uh, upper class families, uh, and that Despite the fact that they came from these families, they had really very little autonomy in their lives and uh, they could not go to the universities. They could not become uh, have a profession of any kind. Uh, They uh, were even though they were highly educated because uh, the better educated that they were, the more money families could get by selling them off. And and so these aristocratic uh, they they disliked the Catholic Church. Uh, th- there's there's no mention of religion in any of their stories. They were very secular, um, and uh, one could say you know th- it began earlier, even before the uh, the uh, in the 17th century, at the beginning of the 17th, 17th century. Uh, women uh, began establishing salons in order to show off their talents, their, uh, their ingenuity, uh, their creativity, and so on and so forth. And so it was the, really the beginning, I think, of feminism, uh, in, in, at least in Europe. And uh, that the, these women were so talented, they were dangerous. And therefore, uh, they were, as I mentioned before, they were either banished, sent off, uh, some of them, as I said, were executed. Uh, Their lives were not pleasant and about the only way that they could have a type of uh, camaraderie were at these salons. There were different salons in Paris and other parts of France, but mainly in, in Paris, in which... Uh, women uh were could speak freely that was their their place to uh join together and uh gain some, uh, gain somewhat respect so there's no doubt that in all of the tales written by uh women at this time uh there is a resistance uh and an resistance to the sort of power that men had over them. Uh, and it, there was a also at the same time uh, an exposure exposure of how uh, immoral li- the the lives uh, were uh, at that time at the court uh, how 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 corrupt uh, the king was and uh, so that you have a lot of questions subtle. Uh, you know, in in the writing these tales, they uh, they could not be blamed for a direct attack on Louis XIV. So the fairy tales was highly significant for these women and uh, gave them hope, you know, that they could break out of the patriarchal domination, which uh, was very repressive during that time.
1: Yeah, you can definitely see some of that, um, you know, especially with some of the later tales in the books, the, you know, kingdoms just being utterly corrupt and, you know, the women having to essentially do something about it. Yes. Um, So all of their messages, you know, regarding the politics of the time, regarding the social structures would be hidden in euphemism. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And a bit comically at times, too.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, no. The the uh, you know a lot of people. There's a term in French called bagatelle. Bagatelle means a a small itty bitty uh, thing that doesn't really mean much, uh, or plaything, toy thing, or frivolous. And uh, recently, I read a, a very excellent essay. Uh, if I can find, find it, by a scholar, but her name is. Uh, uh, last name is Fiat, and she wrote the frivolity. She talks about the frivolity uh, of these tales, or their tales seem frivolous. Mm-hmm. Bagatelle sort of in, uh, indicates something that is frivolous, but the fact is that they were that became an aesthetic, and uh, uh, that their tales seem to be silly, foolish, crazy, and so on. But underneath the frivolity. Uh, was this critique of uh, of of the court, uh, the critique of the way men treated women during their time, and so it's extremely important to bear in mind that there's a great deal of sardonic humor, not only in uh, uh, Madame uh, uh tales, but also there there's some like Charlotte Rose de Comont de la. Uh, Force and Henriette uh, Julie de Murat. Uh, I could go through a whole list of of these writers who uh, are just as good as Madame Noir, and really actually somebody should be uh, doing a, a publishing on a whole anthology translating uh these rebels uh they were all rebels during their time.
1: I find it really amazing that you know there were so many writers who you know were extremely influential in their time that they just aren't really talked about very much now. Right. Um, why do you think that somebody like Charles Perrault is so well known now, while you know Madame Daulnois and you know her contemporaries are a little bit forgotten?
2: Yeah. Well, I I I think that <laughs> one short answer one. Quick answer is, his tales were very short, <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and tales are generally fifteen to thirty pages long. Uh, s- same thing with the other the other writers, but so Perrault was closer also to a well known oral tradition. He was mm-hmm. he only wrote six tales uh, that that are very good, very interesting, but again they are not. Uh, uh they they are tales that are from a male perspective, and uh he was not as concerned as the uh, women writers of that time uh, uh, about exposing the immorality of the aristocrats at that time so uh so I think that in, in very uh, because of the fact that his tales came after by the way. Madame Madame Donois. He also knew uh, a good many of the women, rebel women. He he attended some of these salons. And uh, so that his popularity, I think, is due to the fact that, again, he was a very graceful writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, He had had a very good style, very ironic. Uh, All his morals are like at the end of Little Red Riding Hood, he uh, said, he writes, little girls who invite wolves into their parlors deserve what they get. Now, that is a male, typical male, you know, uh, belief, even today. Most men believe that if uh, a woman is raped or violated, uh, uh, they were asking for it in some way. The males are always innocent you know. Or yeah, that, little... that
1: sounds distressingly uh, familiar.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it, when you look closely at, at uh, Little Red Riding Hood or Petit, Le Petit Chaperon Rouge, uh, you can see quite that uh, Perrault is, is definitely a defender of the patriarchal uh, tradition, even though he wrote an essay uh, again in 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 defense of women writers <laughs> at one time he uh, uh there was a whole debate going on at that uh, in the late 16 in the 1690s as to uh whether women should write or uh, uh how women should be depicted and so on and he actually tried to defend women but actually his defense was really uh, not very helpful <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really amazing though it you know it's always striking to me when I'm reading through some of these older stories how relevant they seem to modern day yes, um you know especially with you know reading you know the Island of Happiness, you know the collection that was put together it the stories seemed startlingly modern, yes, um they really resonated, and it you know again was just surprising to see such you know ardent feminism. You know coming out, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that you know really struck me was with the white cat, you know how the beast bridegroom you know kind of trope was inverted with it, mm-hmm. you know how it was the man who was courting the monster and you know seeing past that um, you know in the <clears throat> I took a course on fairy tales in college and we were reading through uh, beauty and the beast and talking about how you know, women for a very long time were being married off at 13 to 50 year old men. And, you know, how a story like this is meant to make them okay with the situation. Like they're a good man beneath. You just need to get to it. So it was shocking to read the white cat, and see, <laughs> you know, somebody just turning that on its head a little bit.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, a wonderful tale. And uh, it, Again, it reflected the way uh, uh, women wanted to, uh, women writers wanted to show the independence or the autonomy of, of women and how they themselves could manage uh, life the way they wanted to live in a, in a free way and to be respected. So, uh, and there's no moral didacticism in their tales. If anything, there's they seem to be frivolous, as I mentioned before. But they're not, not at all.
1: Yeah, the uh, I mean, the idea of a dog being so small it could fit in a walnut is definitely <laughs> frivolous on its face.
2: <laughs> right. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, what do you think was the draw of the Cupid and Psyche theme? You know, that kept cropping up through her stories.
2: Yeah yeah well i i you know i think that uh, if you take any of the what we call the classical or canonical fairy tales uh from the past uh and uh uh, look at them uh carefully they most of them that stay with us in in our brains when when we read or exposed to fairy tales which is quite often in our very yeah. early years, um, they te- they they have a mimetic what I call a mimetic quality, uh, and that that is the 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 essence of these tales. Uh, quite often are such uh, uh, re- re- uh, reflect a, a conflict, like uh, one could say the master and the slave. Okay. You know, are conflict, our antagonists. Um, <laughs> they, but they, they have a, a sense of conflict with regard to the way humans have developed uh, a civilizing processes or, or developed uh, behavioral uh, patterns. So that if you take a, a tale like Beauty and the Beast uh, and and look at the essence of the tale. Uh, the, uh, basically, uh, it's a, a tale uh, that uh, emphasizes uh, loyalty, fidelity, a false fidelity to the father. In, in other words, the uh, women should sacrifice their lives to men, mm-hmm. sacri- particularly in father figures and so uh this is not uh this is has not been resolved by us in, in, in our civilizing process if anything it's gotten worse uh, uh, uh because uh because of the fact that uh, uh more pressure in some ways even though women are much more independent today uh more pressure on them to do uh, what men want them to do, particularly father figures, uh, still there. And and until uh, this conflict is resolved, we're going to get similar tales like Beauty and the Beast. But a, a better example might be Hansel and Gretel, in which children are abandoned. And uh, abandoned, and it's, it turns out uh, that's sort of a happy end uh, to to that tale, mainly because they're smart and escape uh, another escape a woman, a witch. Yeah. But but the essence of the uh, Hansel and Gretel tales is basically child abandon child abuse. Yeah. And and we today continue to abuse, miseducate and uh, create conditions in the world that uh, enable, that that do not enable them to realize their own powers, their own talents and so on, but basically they have to conform to particular civilizing processes, which justifies quite often the abuse of children. So I, I don't want to get, go into detail about this, but uh, what I'm basically trying to say is that uh, certain tales become mimetic and and not in the stupid way memes are used today. Uh, But according to Richard Dawkins, who the biologist who wrote The Selfish Gene in uh, 19, I think it was 1976, it goes back quite some time. And that last chapter in that book about genes He says, not only are we influenced by our genes, but we are influenced by memes. And and he defines basically that a meme can be, uh, is information. Uh, A meme uh, can be a color, it can be a song, it could be a theme, it could be this and that. And so what I've tried to do in my own writing recently is to try to look at the sort of materialist basis of a particular theme or me or conflict and 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 how the, uh, it's repeatedly used in fairy tales today or novels today or plays they or operas and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and so you get you know a, a list of numerous tales that uh, we can find that 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 go way back to the Europe to the uh, Roman period uh, that have remained with us because of not because that they're beautifully written or something like that, but because of they raise they raise the question of uh, a conflict that has not been resolved. Uh, we, for instance, have not resolved the whole way the violation of women in the world. And, and because of that, Little Red Riding Hood or in tales like that will continue to come in different in, in a different way, not justifying yeah. the, the, the way men treat women, but uh, contesting that. Angela Carter's great stories in, in the 1970s and 80s uh, reflect, uh, you know, how women have taken hold of those tales yeah. and rewritten the tales in the name of feminism
1: yeah i was thinking a lot about um, angela carter's you know the bloody chamber while i was right. reading adorno uh, yes. it and it was striking me you know as i was you know reading it that i you know, couldn't really think of you know any other author um who so powerfully you know, reflected what Del Noir was doing. Yes. You know, I was curious if you could think of, you know, if you could think of any other author um, who was doing what Angela Carter was essentially doing, um, you know, in terms of, you know, feminist retellings or, you know, recreations of fairy tales.
2: Yeah, no, Angela Carter and Anne Sexton are, are for me, two touch, touching points or two figures who set off in, at least in literature, uh, the rewriting from a feminist point of view up through today uh, of, of all the traditional fairy tales. And so there there are literally hundreds, hundreds of great, interesting writers, male and female, but mainly female, mm-hmm. uh, who have been writing fairy tales that are extraordinary. Uh, I think of Kelly Link or... Oh yeah, Uh, uh, Amy Bender, and then there's Helen. uh, I don't think I can pronounce her name. Oye (laughs) Mi, who's uh, written uh, uh, amazing tales. So, uh, and uh, the the the, uh, journal Marvels and Tales has published numerous very good essays about uh, the uh, way fairy tales have been transformed. In unusual ways. So, um, uh, again, uh, the fairy tale is used as as a way to distance readers from the problems that we have that are so relevant in our lives, and they may, they make actually some of the conditions bearable uh, <laughs> because of the fact that uh, there's a different resolution, at least in these a lot of utopian aspects are are in contemporary fairy tales that you don't really find in tales you know that go back to the 17th century
1: yeah that's fantastic and I can't believe I didn't think of Kelly Link
2: <laughs> <laughs> she's a very good writer there but she's one of many nowadays it's just surprising how uh, how how many good writers there are in the world today
1: uh, do you believe that there will be, you know, even more good writers, you know, coming out in um, Dolnois tradition now that, you know, more people are gaining an interest, you know, in her fairy tales and similar writers, you know, from that time?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I I, I It's difficult, you, you know, we would have to trace sort of the background of the contemporary writer, you know, whom have they read and so on but certainly uh you know madame Dunois was not a popular writer uh or known to you know other uh, uh, readers in other countries until the beginning of the 20th century so it, it took a couple of centuries uh, before her work was then rediscovered and uh and i think that uh the, this rediscovery, even in academics, a lot of very good scholars uh, have written about Madame Del Noir and that period. And so uh, I think that there's a real basis, you know, a strong basis that will help uh, or enable writers to become more critical in the way they write about, about certain conflicts that we've been having.
1: Yeah, I feel like we're uh, on the cusp of a new renaissance of, you know, feminist writing. Yes. I You know, I genuinely feel that way. And, you know, reading back through the, you know, biography and listening to you, you retell her biography, it strikes me that there are many, you know, similar or at least analogous issues that women are facing today.
2: Right.
1: So I, I think that there could be a lot of very interesting stories coming out.
2: Yes. I agree with you full heartedly. And uh, 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 another writer I like very much is Amy Bender. I don't know whether you, you know her works. They're very uh, uh, ironic. Uh, she, she teaches at, at the University of California, in S- uh, Southern Southern California, I think USC. And uh, her writers are very absurd. They're almost Kafkaesque. In other words, it's really. Uh, The styles are are, are exceptional, the different writers like Kelly Link uh, and uh, and others I I could mention that are are really uh, a hopeful sign, I think, that uh, um, maybe uh, the uh, patriarchal domination with regard to uh, uh, the uh, traditional writers of fairy tales, will soon be a thing of the past
1: yeah i i hope that we get to see that yes and i look forward to looking into amy bender's writing now yes. oh do that
2: yes you're, you're
1: definitely giving me a reading list and i'm appreciating it <laughs> but thank you so much for your time and That's i okay. hope that i get to talk to you again when you're done Translating the novels. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, that's a that's a deal. I I I, I don't think E.T.A. Hoffman has uh, received the attention that he deserves, and so it'll it'll be interesting also to see what Natalie comes up in her illustrations. So uh, thank you, thank you. I'm Hillary. excited about
1: it. Thank, thank you. you.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, you take care.
2: Take care.
0: Our thanks to Professor Jack Zipes for agreeing to come on the podcast and discuss this important book. It is a privilege to be able to bring you an interview with such a significant figure in the world of literary tales. Thanks also to Hilary Wilson for recording the interview. Our next release will be an episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, in which you can hear Natalie Franks talk about her work illustrating this book. You can also read the review on the Folklore Podcast website. Don't forget that by joining our Patreon for as little as a pound a month, you'll be supporting projects across our whole network. That's the podcast, the book club, and the vital work of the Folklore Library and Archive to preserve and make available folklore material for future researchers. It's a great time to join as we're just about to start a new audio part work for all Patreon supporters, as well as mini audio episodes for £5 and above supporters exclusively. If you can't commit to regular support, you can make a small donation on our website or at www.folklorelibrary.com slash fundraising. Whether you can help in this way or not, please share our episodes on social media, chat with us on the Facebook group or on Twitter, and help the Folklore Podcast Network to continue to grow and thrive. Thanks for listening, see you next time.